preaching of God's Word then is found in Isaiah and chapter 50, as we read earlier, and we look particularly in Isaiah 50 at verses 5 and 6. So here again, the Word of God, Isaiah chapter 50, verses 5 and 6. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. You and I realize that the Scriptures are full of various ways of setting forth the love of Christ. We have such prophesied unto us. We have the record of His earthly ministry recording various words of His which are all full of grace and truth, of which we can say, as they said before, never man spake as this man. The Scriptures record for us as well His works of tender mercy, both to the outward and inward man, and the various blessings which do come to us and to others by Him. But there's also this way of discerning the love of Christ by seeing just how heavily He was willingly shamed for our sakes. That here presented to us is that which we read as well in Mark 14 and 15. The suffering of Christ, the shame of Christ, and all of it done to the glory of His Father and to the good of those for whom He so suffered. Notice the text referring to that servant which in a few short chapters would be said to be Him who hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, who was wounded for our transgressions, who was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. With His stripes we are healed. It's not just Isaiah 53, but it's the many chapters throughout that hold forth the suffering of Christ for our salvation. And such is before us in these two verses. Notice that it says, His ear is opened. And related to that, that He was not rebellious. So He hears and is made a willing servant. We as children know what it is to have instruction given to us by our parents. Our parents say, look me in the eye. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Put that down. Give me your attention. And then we're instructed. We're told what to do. And yet we also know by sinful experience what it is to have understood what was asked of us and to have justified a course of rebellion. But the text tells us that having received the commission from His Father, that He was not rebellious. Think of what it is to which He was not rebellious. It was the course of shame. You're going to suffer these immeasurable indignities. You're going to endure the shame of the cross. It's of interest to us in the book of Hebrews. We're told that He looked for the glory that was before Him. And He looked 
through the shame of the cross. He looked to the cross, but through it and despised the shame. There's nothing here of Christ in some strange measure desiring shame, but He is willing to submit to the shame in order to procure the salvation and the joy that was set before Him. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame thereof. We sometimes make the mystery of the Incarnation to, as it were, lessen the experienced shame of Christ. But the wonder of the Incarnation does nothing to lessen the experience of shame that Christ so went through. It only confirms that His pain was real pain. Physical, emotional, spiritual. That He was not somehow upheld to be insensitive to the slappings upon His face, to the scourge against His flesh, to the crown of thorns upon His head. He was not somehow made insensible to the shame and scoffings of men as He stood naked upon the cross, nailed. He was not made insensitive to the scoffings and scornings and mockeries that were all around Him, engulfing Him and consuming Him. He knew all of it would come. And yet, none of that lessened the sharpness of pain that He experienced. But what's wondrous is that knowing that, He says, neither did I turn away back. I knew all of it would come. And yet I marched forward. As is said later, He set His face like flint. And notice the text as well. It describes what He did. It doesn't say that His back was, as it were, open to the smiters. But the language is, I gave My back to the smiters. It's as if He said, here's My back. Do it. And notice as well, it says that He gave His cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. And He hid not His face from shame and spitting. It's amazing, isn't it? How instantly we recoil at the slightest indignity shown to us. The best of men experience this. You're driving down the hallway or down the highway, someone cuts you off, and you think in various ways, how dare you do this to me? Someone gives a gesture to you and you think this is repulsive. And we even find ourselves at times praying imprecations upon those who do the most trivial things to us. And yet here Christ faces no trivial shame but the greatest height of shame cast upon Him. And yet in the text, this word gave indicates His willingness. It's true, the Father commissioned Him, ordained Him, but that doesn't mean He wasn't willing to do it. In fact, these join together. The Father saying, Son, here's what you'll do for the salvation of the elect. And the Son, without a moment's hesitation, says, 
Yes, Father, I will do it. I want to do that. I'll procure the salvation of my people. Notice how similarly this truth is held forth in the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 40. When it is, as we've sung on many occasions, this reference of the Lord Jesus Christ, when He says, Psalm 40, verse 6, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, mine ears hast thou opened, burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will. He comes most willingly. We see this, brethren, what we find is Christ willingly embraced the fullness of the shame of the cross in order to save His beloved people. Consider then, to help us better understand and meditate upon this truth, three things. The experience of shame. Secondly, the embrace of shame. And thirdly, the end of shame. The experience, the embrace, and the end of shame. Now, as we begin with the experience of shame, it's important for us to understand just what shame is. We live in a world that uses the word much, but seemingly knows nothing about the word shame. And so there are things that are popularly presented to us of body shaming and other such things. But there is no real understanding of the weight of this word. I mean, say the opposite of shame is glory. Glory is dignity, honor, value, worth, and so on. But the word shame indicates dishonor. It indicates confusion and reproach. And so when it is that Christ says, I hid not my face from shame, He doesn't cover Himself up and hide Himself and run embarrassed away. He doesn't, as it were, pull the sheet over His head. He discloses His face. He opens it up so that He would receive dishonor. That He would receive confusion. That He would receive reproach. That it would all fall upon Him. It's Christ's shame on the cross most particularly. And yet, the shame that He's experiencing is the very essence of the shame that is experienced in hell. Shame is connected to sin. Shame is the right exposure of oneself to the ridicule, to the confusion, to the judgment that belongs to sinners. So children, you'll remember this. Early in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve do eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And their eyes are opened and they perceive their nakedness, which all of a sudden becomes their shame. And what do they do? They run and they seek to cover their shame. And God draws near to them in the cool of the day, seeking His image bearers. But here's the problem. Instead of reflecting the glorious God, they now bear the imprint 
of sin and shame. And so what do they do? They flee from the presence of God. They're ashamed of themselves. They're gripped by it. That's the right expression and the right relationship to sin. This is why there's a saying in our culture, have you no shame? The way you speak, the way you dress, the way you behave, this should be shameful. There are godless things that take place in our culture, so-called pride marches and so on, were the most ludicrous expressions of wicked sensuality is exposed. And with smiles and dances and music and all upon the judgment that you should see and witness there is there is no shame in their abject rebellion against God. They're doing that which is to bring shame upon them. It's what is recorded in the book of Revelation. When the Lamb of God comes from heaven, those who are so bold in this day, those who were filled with laughter in their sin, who sought to outdo one another in their drunkenness and all of their revelry, who sought to outdo themselves in their blasphemous speech, they thought that they had no shame. They thought that they had somehow broken the link between sin and shame. But what is it when the glorious Son of God appears that they find? They find their shame. And so they turn to the mountains and what do they say? They say, mountains fall on us. Cover us. Hide us from the wrath of of the Lamb. The chain may be long between the act of sin and the experience of shame, but the chain is there. Our day may have many who go on in their sin without the slightest feeling of shame. You see this on the streets that you drive on. Bumper stickers that hold up all manner of sin. You see this if you give any attention to the news, celebrations and praises and all sorts of indignity that ought to be experienced with shame, and yet it's celebrated. But brethren, know this, that those expressions of sin are infallibly, inseparably linked to the experience of shame. Many in this room know that by experience. Some of us can look back to sinful lives in our youth. And we can remember the smiles that were upon our faces. We can remember the pats on the back that we expressed to others and received from others. We can remember the sensual delights that took place with friends and so on in sin. And we can remember the laughter of all of these foolish things. But praise be to God that He gave us a short chain and that He brought us to experience the shame and to experience conviction for our sin that we might go to Him who frees us from our shame. But notice that this shame is experienced 
by Christ. The shame that is experienced is that which belongs to Christ. This is something that ought to make us wonder. Because Christ never had so much as an impure thought in His mind. He never had anything but what was entirely conformed in every way to the perfect and pure law of God. Never was there profanity on His mouth. Never was there the excuse of sin. Never was there sin. He only did what was right. He only gave Himself to righteousness. He only spoke what was true. He only spoke what was balanced. He only spoke what honored His Father. He only did what was good. He only did what helped. He only did what was right according to the perfect law of God. And yet, brethren, notice, it's He who says, I gave My back to the smiters. I hid not My face from shame and spitting. The experience of shame is not focused here upon those who shall be condemned because of their sins. It's focused on Him who never sinned. Which begs from us this consideration. Why did He then so suffer shame? Of course, You know well, the book itself answers it for us as we indicated from Isaiah 53. In verse 6, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Understand this for a moment. When you see portrayed to yourself in the scriptures the suffering and shame of Christ, in one sense, you see a mirror held up for all that you deserve, for all of your sins, and for everlasting time and eternity. That's what you have earned. Now the godless man says, come on, you've got to be kidding me. This is what someone would deserve for all eternity? I can understand, perhaps, that there's some shame that ought to be experienced in time, temporally bound for these things but it's because they misunderstand both the nature of sin and the one against whom sin is committed. That when once we understand what sin is, that it is rebellion against Him who is only good, who is most glorious, who instantaneously demands, rightfully so, nothing but faith, nothing but obedience, nothing but love, nothing but self-denial, nothing but service. And that sin against Him is not sin against some time creature. It is sin against the infinite and eternal One. So that sin committed is an infinite an everlasting evil. Satan is a master liar. And one chief lie he gives is it's just a little sin. It'll be done over and gone before there's another thought. Say that word that's welling up and is on the tip of your tongue. Think that thought 
that for 10 seconds would give you some sinful pleasure. Do that thing that would, yes, step out of God's law, but would really be finished in 60 seconds, 10 minutes, an hour, an evening, a week. Who cares? It'll be done, and then you can get on with your life. But the lie embedded in it, the denial of the fact that sin is against the infinite and glorious God, that sin committed against Him who is great is great sin indeed. That though it be committed in a second span, it's committed against Him who demands and deserves nothing but lasting praise. And here we see Christ experiencing what you and I have earned because God placed the cause of our shame upon Him. But more than that, Christ willingly took the cause of his shame, our shame upon Himself. So we read, of course, in the New Testament that Christ was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Notice then, secondly, the embrace of shame. We've said this already, but it's good to emphasize the same, that this is a willing embrace. Are there not things in your lives that are difficult, that you're not really willing to do, save that you want to save face? You do it because others are around, you know you should do it perhaps, but it's not as if left to yourself, You're willing to do it. We're grateful that the Lord puts constraints in our lives that many times are used to guide us into the right way. And so we see others we respect, they're around us, and so we abstain from certain behaviors and actions, and so on. There are constraints the Lord gives us. But we also know what it is to have, at various seasons of our lives, no constraints. And then it shows us what we really desire what we personally choose. It shows us our willingness. Christ here testifies of His willingness. It doesn't say, verse 6, I was forced to give my back. It doesn't say I was drawn to give my back. It simply says, I gave my back. There are the smiters. He's turning His back to them and saying, lash it. There are the mockers. He turns His face to them, and He says, mock me. There's those who, with a clenched fist, do begin to strike Christ and say, prophesy who it is that struck you. And He turns His face to them. The plucking off of the hairs of His cheeks, He says, do it. Take it from me. Give me the pain. Make it fall squarely upon me. It is, of course, as when in Zechariah we're told that the Father says He unsheathes His sword 
And he says that it is to fall upon the man that is my fellow. Christ, as it were, says, make sure it falls only on me. I want the divine vengeance upon me. Now, we know that loving expression that even the Apostle uses when he speaks of his kinsmen according to the flesh, that he would to God that they would be saved. And he even says on another occasion that he would be willing to be condemned that his brethren would be saved. But brothers and sisters, we ought never trivially to say such things. Oh, it sounds pious, doesn't it? It sounds good, but think for a moment the weight of God's wrath. It's an amazing thought to understand this. That hell will be an everlasting duration where their worm dieth not. And God will be upholding His creature who has rebelled to pour forth rightly, justly, His wrath against them. That the infinite power of God will come with acute focus upon each individual sufferer that they experience torment forever. If you have loved ones in your lives, it's not that hell ought to be the only motive, but it is wrong to think that it's not a motive to tell them of their sin and to tell them of the Savior. Our culture has done all that it can to denude hell, to make it, as it were, fangless. And so there are parties in hell. There's going to be all sorts of music in hell and rebellion in hell, not realizing that there is nothing in hell but torment unutterable. There are screamings and cryings and weepings in hell. Think of this, brethren. Some in this room knew what it was to turn on the television and see planes crash into the two towers in New York City. And some in this room know what it is to have seen people on live television fleeing themselves burning in fuel from higher levels of those towers trying to escape the torment of their body being consumed in fire. That's what happens naturally to our bodies. But understand this for a moment. Though men would seek relief by death, there is no escape of death in hell. There is no escape of torment in hell. It's unending. A day passes, no nearer the end. A a millennium passes, no nearer the end. It continues and continues and continues. This is hell. And Christ says, give it to me. I'll take it. I'll bear it. He didn't go in some ignorant strain and say, sure, whatever it is, let me do it. And then we say, oh, that's what it is. Ah, Let me think about it again. I didn't read the fine print. I didn't realize all that it was. He knew the length, breadth, depth, height of it. And he says, all of it. Every last drop of it. Make sure that it falls on me. I want it. He was no mindless one seeking pain for pain's sake. 
It is rather, as we have seen again and again and again in the Scriptures, that He had a motive of love to His people. He saw what they must, by divine justice, experience. And He said, I will stand in their place. Make Me their curse. Make Me to bear their shame. Make Me to suffer it in its fullest measure. So, the whole cup of God's wrath is given to the divine person incarnate. And He willingly says, all of it is Mine. I will leave nothing in it for My people. I will bear it all for them. He's willing with understanding to embrace it. And this embrace as well is unto us a saving embrace. Notice that it says, I gave my back, not I give my back. I gave my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face, not I hide not my face. It's spoken of as in the past tense. It's spoken of as completed. And what a blessing it is, as we'll see, that Christ has done this. It's prophesied here in Isaiah, but we read in Mark's Gospel of done. And it's being done not for Himself. When John points at Jesus Christ and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Every Jew in there knew the reference. And yet John goes further, which taketh away the sins of the world. Not just the Jew, but the Gentile. The elect from the four corners of the earth. All of their sins placed upon Him. And think of this for a moment. It's a beautiful testimony. The high priest taking his hands and placing them upon the sacrificial victim. And he confesses over the head all of the sins of Israel and they're transferred, as it were, to that sacrifice so that the people of Israel would not endure the just judgment that was due unto them. Christ does this in order to save His people. Which leads us to the end of shame. Because, as Christ said, it is finished. His days of humiliation are ended. He's no longer suffering. He's no longer buried. He's rather risen and ascended and is seated, understand this, at the right hand of the Majesty on high and there presents Himself for His people, no longer as the One who is in a humbled state, but as the One who has conquered death and hell. Behold, I am He that was dead, but I am alive forevermore. He's done it. He's given His back. It's finished. It's completed. Though His mystical body, the church, has something of the days of warfare still, we're wrong to think that we are in the days of Christ's humiliation. We're in the days of His glorification. We're in the days of going across the world and declaring the Savior who was shamed, 
but is now alive, who is glorified and is coming again. A great change has overtaken the church that we're not in anticipation of the coming one who will be shamed, but we live as those who look back to Him who was shamed, but is now glorified, and we proclaim His death till He come. Always looking toward the hope of the saints. His shame is completed. It's finished. It's over. It's an amazing reference. We ought to consider. Christ utters His cry. It is finished. He gives up the ghost, bowing His head in victory. Perhaps some reference to Samson, who as it says in his last day, he bowed all his strength against the pillar that it toppled. And in his death that he died, he killed more Philistines by his death than in his life. Christ, crying out in victory, it's finished, and bowing himself in victory through death. But we remember, of course, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who had to that point been in fear, begging the body of Christ. And it's a scene, isn't it? The Lord of glory, His lifeless body draped over their shoulders, carried lifelessly to the tomb, prepared for burial, wrapped and laid in the tomb. The stone rolled over. They're lifeless. And yet, brethren, as you and I know, this Lord of glory who was shamed, it is said of Him that it was not possible that death could keep Him. And so He rose again. And in rising again, He is declared to be the Son of God with power. And by His resurrection, there is evidence, tangible, historical, recorded evidence, that His sacrifice is received by God in heaven. And so what this means is, whereas His shame is finished, the shame that would justly fall upon us is removed. His sacrifice has been accepted in heaven. Where did He go? It's not insignificant. He ascended up into heaven. But go further. Where did He go in heaven? He didn't just go, as it were, to that general display of the glory of God, we're told in the book of Hebrews, He entered not merely into the holy place, but into the most holy place not made with hands. To do what? To present Himself for us. To say, they deserved it, but I took it. And so their shame is theirs no longer. We're told, of course, beautifully so, that the handwriting of ordinances that was against us He took it all and He nailed it to the cross. All of that which would be the record of our sin and the cause of our shame, He says, I've answered it. Never will My people be shamed for their sins. This doesn't mean there's not conviction and in a lesser sort, that kind of shame. But the shame of torment the shame of agony, shall His people never know, not even a drop. 
because he took all of it and paid it in full. This is the work of Christ willingly embracing the shame of His people's sins and answering it fully for us. Well, brethren, it's worthy to say a word if any be gathered who are without Christ. To emphasize this point, whether young or old, your sin is inseparably linked to shame. You can find people in this world who will smile and encourage and strengthen your hands in your sin. But understand this, all it does is at the end of the chain that is most infallibly linked to your soul, it increases the weight of shame that will come toppling down upon you. It is most certain. And it is yours. It may not be felt, but it is attached. Think of this for a moment. Young people, you may be strong, you may be weak, but you know this, you can have a 500-pound boulder attached to you by a chain, and you wouldn't feel an ounce of it. You would feel nothing of it. And if someone said, do you feel any of the weight of that boulder? You'd say, I don't feel anything. But if someone were able to move that boulder and throw it off a cliff, you would then feel the weight of it because it would instantly drag you down to your destruction. And the same is true of our sin and its infallible connection to our shame. Our shame for a season may long be unfelt, but it will, it will most surely come crashing down in due time. We know not the day it will, but we know that it will. We remember Herod as he gave such an oration that caused the men to say it is the voice of a God and not a man. And he not giving glory to God was made to feel what? His shame. For worms did eat him. He was consumed, brought to death, and plunged into hell. Oh, how many have gone in a moment's notice from the laughter of sin into the unending torment of their shame, being taken in the very instance of their rebellion. Understand this. There is no refuge. There is no removal of your shame except by Christ Jesus. Because it's only He who is able to unlatch the shackle and to have put it upon Himself and say, I'll take it. None other can do that. None other is able to do it. None other is appointed to do it. And so if you stand without Christ, you stand most surely to bear your shame unendingly. And when it is, you would cry out in torment, Oh, lessen it! the only response from heaven will be, this is what you chose. This is what you deserve. This is what good justice demands. There will be no lessening. But on and on and on forever. And the hearers of the Gospel, their shame will be multiplied because with their ears, they heard 
the way of salvation. And their torment will be multiplied above all others because they will be cursing themselves. I heard of the Savior. I heard of salvation. And yet such was my wicked delight in sin that I turned against it and said, I'll deal with that later. And now here I endure the just infliction contrary to the prayers of parents, to the pleadings of pastors, to the Word of God, which did say, Oh, why will ye perish? My answer was, I'll perish because I love sin. But brethren, whatever is true of those who are without Christ, you are those who are with Christ. And it's true, Satan remains a liar to you. It's not as if one's converted and then Satan becomes a truth-teller. It's not as if one's converted and then Satan all of a sudden starts to tell you all the things that are right and good and balanced. And so Satan knows how to stumble and trip up and to cause saints to struggle. And chief above all else, he makes sure to do what he can to eclipse from our sight the glory of a Christ who was shamed for us. It's right for you this past week to have experienced conviction over either newly discovered sins or sins discovered in new strength and new insight and so on, to have the conviction of that, to be brought low by that and so on. But it's wrong for the believer to say, well now, in light of this, I have no hope. Because it's a false connection. It's right to be brought low by our sins. But it's wrong to be paralyzed by them if a believer. Because Christ has taken the full weight of our shame for us. That we might have nothing but glory. And someone comes in, perhaps Satan comes in, perhaps our own thoughts come in, and they start to argue with us and say, but... Christ is worthy of glory, and I have not given Him glory. Christ is worthy of praise, I have not given Him praise. Surely I must sit down and bear my shame quietly. Would you make double payment for what Christ has already paid in full? You can't. Your tears, your weepings, none of it can remove the shame that you deserved. But Christ has already taken it, all of it, and has answered it, all of it. So that when you reflect back to the sins of your youth, and they rightly cause tears to stream from your eyes, when you think, I've been the instrument of hardening sinners that shall never be converted, my blasphemous speech has puffed up others in their youth that they should stand stout-hearted against God and hold out forever. My passing on of sin to others has so secured them in courses of sin that they shall be damned and I had a part in it. When those kinds of thoughts grip you and you say I'm unworthy to know the slightest joy and blessing and experience of fellowship with God, you ought to say that's right. But Christ has taken all of my guilt Christ has taken all of my shame. Christ has taken it unto Himself. 
And he says, it's finished. All of it's answered. I've dealt with it. Because I gave my back to the smiters. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. I stepped in your place and I made payment for your shame so that you now, by me, have right to nothing but glory and joy and rejoicing for all eternity. And what do we do but fall before Him and say, I don't deserve this. I have no right to it of myself. I've never done anything for this. But oh, thank You, Christ. And I receive freely the blessings which You have purchased for me. Oh, brethren, with every palm that struck Your Master's face, with every thorn that pierced the crown of His head, with every verbal mockery that His holy ears received, with every aspect of His shame, what you behold, what you see, is the certain love of Christ for you. It's yours. He's taken it all because of love to you. Would you stand with me for prayer?